Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Dr. Angela Cusimano on the impact of divorce on attachment. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm looking forward to interviewing my guest today and sharing the interview with you. Um, I am going to be speaking with Dr. Angela Cusimano, and let me give you a little bit of background about her. She has a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of North Texas, and she has specialty training in marriage and family therapy. Her doctoral dissertation studied the effects of parental conflict on children's well-being and how a strong bond between a parent and child can protect kids from the negative effects of conflict. Um, So Dr. Cusimano is going to be talking with us today about the impact of divorce on attachment and children. So I'm looking forward to the interview and uh, she will be here with us in just a minute. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm here with Dr. Angela Cusimano for part two of our podcast on the impact of divorce on attachment. Good to see you again to continue this. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, you know, you were, we were winding up last time in terms of looking at real specific to attachment and um, the impact of, you know, secure base, safe haven um, on, on uh, security of attachment and how divorce impacts that. And I was thinking of an example one time where I was uh, doing um, in an EMDR workshop and um, somebody was talking about um, an incident and you know how sometimes we go back to a touchstone incident and things like this and this person said um, that one of the most traumatic memories they have of sitting out was sitting outside on the porch with their little overnight suitcase waiting to be picked up um, by the other parent and that parent often not showing up and I just never forgot that uh, statement. And, and I think it, it relates to, to what you were saying earlier and, and, and also starts to get us into like, how, how, come, how can these things best be handled in the best scenario for divorce? So just some thoughts about that. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that's, um, there's so many answers to that question. You know, I think best case scenario for one family may be different for so many others, but, um, you know, the thing that it makes me think of is, um, you know, if, if we're, if we're not divorcing because of the kids and then, you know, that the outcome is eventually divorce, um, you know, how does the, how does the focus shift so drastically from, you know, wanting to protect our kids from the impact of divorce to like, okay, post-divorce, um, that's not necessarily, you know, in our, in the, in the priority list. Right. Um, you know, the parents, you know, may have their own hurt feelings about 
you know, being divorced or, um, you know, having somebody serve them with papers and, and things like that. And I get that there's, you know, an emotional adjustment period for all parents after that. Um, but again, it, it very much seems to focus from, okay, what, what's best for the kids to like, what's best for me right now that I'm not a married individual. Um, you know, it, it seems like in, in that case where a parent doesn't show up to pick up their kid, right. When legally or otherwise they're supposed to, I mean, it makes me wonder what's going on there, right? Like what's going on there for that parent? You know, are they so hurt? Or are they so, um, you know, just not okay, you know, after the divorce that it, it forces them to like, not be there. Right. Um, and again, from an attachment perspective, and, and obviously, this event had a huge impact on this person, right, many, many years later. Um, and it, again, snapshot image of parent not showing up, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pure example of, you know, how to if, if the attachment was secure before then, like, that's a perfect example of how to disrupt a, a secure attachment, right? I mean, kids need to know that you're going to be there, right, physically or, or otherwise, and, and not showing up really does send them the message that, you know, I don't really matter, you know, my parent doesn't care. Um, you know, um, it's, I think best case scenario is just show up, right? Just yeah. show up regardless yeah. of your feelings against the spouse and, and the situation, right? right? Just show up because your kids be, need you. Be reliable. Do what you said you would do. You know, be present when you said you would be present. I'm also wondering what advice, I'm going to be giving lots of questions that come up uh, over the, the years of my own clinical work, even though this isn't a specialty area. Of course, this comes up for like, any clinician listening and probably any parent listening to some degree, even if it's not personal, um, what in a situation like that, where the, the person with primary custody or, or whatever the arrangement is, um, feels that they're opening their child up to be hurt over and over, but legally, uh, they don't feel like they can just it, cut off. Well, not that they don't feel legally, they cannot stop the visits. What advice do you have for that parent who is feeling like I am facilitating putting myself in this, the situation to be hurt and disappointed and wounded over and over? What do I do? Or, you know, the parent shows up one out of seven times, you know, and the other six is this. What advice do you have for that parent? Yeah, I think, again, this depends, you know, having having the resources to go back to court and go through that whole legal process again to change custody is, is not only drain, draining on time and energy, but can be financially um, impossible for a lot of families, right? Um, and so there's this balance between, okay, you know, am I going to put more money, time and energy into taking the parent back to court, revising the, the custody arrangement, you know, for the sense of, of protecting my kid from this harm. Um, and I think if, if those means are not there, right, then I think that the very least that could be done is, is just a conversation with kids, you know, about, you know, look, I'm, I'm really sorry that this happens. And, you know, sometimes people don't, don't do what they say they're going to do. Right. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to figure this out and, um, you know, maybe we can sit down with the other parent and, and figure out a better plan. Right. I mean, I think not talking about it and, and again, trying to shield the, the, the child from what might be going on. Um, you know, clearly this is a, 
this is an adult to adult issue, right? I mean, one parent's, you know, not doing what they, they say they're going to do, not necessarily, I think, to, to hurt the kid, right? But to, you know, have an impact or, you know, have, be like kind of in the mind of the other parent that left, right? Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe getting into counseling or therapy for these, these parents, right, to resolve and, and hash out, um, you know, the, the issues that, that are between them. Maybe there's some animosity and, and unresolved resentment that's there. I mean, rightfully so. Um, but putting the kids literally in the middle of, you know, what I see is kind of a tug of war, right? Like kids getting excited, they're, they're packing their bag for the weekend, right? They're excited to see the other parent. And then like the emotional letdown of, you know, that person not showing up, right? And then, um, you know, again, leaning more back on the, the parent with primary custody, right? So a, a little bit of like kind of a tug of war of getting my hopes up. I really want to be, you know, you know, visiting with this other parent, but they're just consistently not showing up. So, I mean, having a conversation, I think, with the kids about what's going on um, at the very least, um, and then making arrangements to, you know, maybe family therapy needs to happen, right? Post-divorce, maybe, you know, therapy between the, the divorced parents needs to happen or a little bit of both, right? So this issue can be processed and dealt with versus, you know, just swept under the rug and, you know, pretending like it's not happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another thing I'm, I like your thoughts on is, first of all, I'd like to know if you know how common this is, if there's any literature about it. Um, and then second, just I, I would imagine you have some similar ideas about this next scenario. Another scenario I've seen a lot is there's a divorce and then there's a remarriage and then there are children um, in the remarriage that, that the, they have uh, the, the, the divorced parent has with um, their, their new partner and in some situations that I have worked with or even seen in my personal life, that's like it. Like, it's almost like the other kids no longer exist. They're, they're not visited. They're not contacted. They're not in any photos. They're, (laughs) it's not just that you've seen this, correct? Yes. 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 Uh, both, both clinically and, you know, unfortunately in my personal life with family members, you know. Yes. And yeah. so I don't know if there's any research indicating how common this is, and, and you can speak to that if you want, but just in what, what else you would say about that situ- in dealing with that situation for yeah, clinicians, I mean, for parents, for individuals, for, you know, for, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, honestly, I don't know that there's there's research out there, um, that, you know, about how frequently this happens, but it, it, I think it would definitely, if it's, if research has not been done, it's, it's definitely an interesting area to, to study, right? Yes. Um, from a, I think from a, at the very least, a prevention standpoint, standpoint, right? Like, what could we be doing, you know, during the divorce process for families to prevent this from happening, right? What are the factors that, that might contribute to this? Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, Again, there, you know, I think maybe we're all guilty of this, right? When bad things happen, you know, we, we really want, you know, the, the impact of that bad thing happening to end, right? Yes. And so sometimes in this process, right, I mean, a, 
an expected reaction might be, okay, well, you know, I found a new partner and, you know, I'm going to go start a new family and I just kind of want to leave the past in the past. Right. And, and I think for, for some circumstances that's completely logical. Right. But I think from a, from a family standpoint, right. I mean, there, there is a family, there are still kids from the past and um, you know, they're, they're expecting to move forward in life with you. Right. I mean, if you were the original source of their, you know, being their parent and, and caretaker, then, you know, they're expecting to continue this journey with you, um, regardless, I think, of age. Um, and, you know, again, what are you teaching them about, you know, not only just their importance in the world, their, their value as a person, right, um, but how much you care about them and how lovable they are, right? Like, mm-hmm. if, if you're just kind of drawing a line saying, well, I'm just going to go start a new life, um, you know, think about what a kid says to, to themselves in that moment, right? Well, mom or dad doesn't love me. I'm not lovable. And maybe I'm not worthy, right? I mean, again, referring maybe back to EMDR, right? Some of those negative conditions right. that can really arise from um, some of these, you know, damaging experiences. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's just... Ah, a lot to think about here. Um, so as somebody that works a lot with attachment in my practice, it is so often brought up with young children, like babies, um, toddlers, um, what kind of visitation should happen here? People, uh, as I'm sure you have experienced or could anticipate, this idea of shuffling, perhaps that's a pejorative way to say it, um, you know, the, the going back and forth. People are worried, you know, is it too disruptive for an infant to spend a couple of days here and then a few days there? And it just seems, particularly with very young children, custody arrangements seem to to be of a real concern related to attachment and, and mm-hmm. you know perhaps we should be concerned at any point about that you know that, that's kind of what we're talking about but what mm-hmm. specific for babies and young children are your thoughts about some of that yeah i mean i i could see i could see this really from both perspectives right i could see it as you know these kids are so young that, you know, on the one hand, they're, they're maybe not able to, to process or or fully understand what's going on. Right. Um, but at the, but at the same time, I think, you know, depending on, you know, the, the specific age and where they are developmentally, I mean, attachment is formed, you know, we know attachment is formed pretty much from the get go. Right. Uh Um, you know, even in, you know, in utero, right, attachment bonds are are formed, right? Um, And so I think we can't assume, you know, absolutely no attachment or that this won't disrupt anything, right? I think that would be kind of a uh, harmful, absolute, you know, rule to, to, to base things off of. Um, and I really think it, it more at really at any age, but especially at younger ages, it's, it's going to be what's, what's most consistent and stable. Um, you know, especially at, at younger ages, but really again, any age of the child, um, you know, what's going to be the most consistent and stable, right. Versus, um, again, the, the cognitive emotional understanding may not be there in infants and, and very young kids, right. Of, of exactly what's going on, but, you know, they're still forming this idea of, you know, okay, I have two parents, right. And my, my parents live in two different places, right. And the, and the, those concepts are starting to form, right. Um, 
versus like I have one parent and I like sometimes maybe see the other parent, right? And and again, I think that the inconsistency would be, you know, more harmful in, in that case. So for say like a one-year-old, can, is there an optimal arrangement? I know it would vary per family, but I mean, do you, I mean, some, some people think, well, uh, they shouldn't be away overnight, for example. That's the opinion of some people. Um, what 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 are thoughts that you have about something like that? Yeah, um, you know, not necessarily being an infant mental health specialist, but I mean, I think like um, again, sometimes these rules are created to protect the the parent versus the child, right? right. Like, you know, that it might be the parent's anxiety contributing to some kind of rule like that. Whereas, mm-hmm. again, if if stable, safe housing can be provided at the other parent's home, you know, why not, right? I mean, again, maybe we need to get them used to spending the night over at the other parent's house sooner rather than later, right? I think as the kid gets older and then, you know, we change things drastically, that's going to be, I think, harder for the kid versus, you know, just kind of making that the rule of thumb and, and staying consistent with it. Yeah, yeah. I hear one thing you're really bringing out is a consistent stable plan that is carried out the way it's written and something that you can anticipate and look forward to like this is how that will be that there's not this idea of it changing all the time or people not showing up or you know that that that's one of the overriding issues here is stick with what you say and uh, which allows it to be predictable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and more safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I know you're doing a lot of work uh, with um, groups for, I think the term you're using is survivor, divorce survivors. And I, you know, we have listeners who also work with adults, you know, so I'm interested in hearing, you know, what, what seemed to be some of the, the lasting impact um, of divorce on your adult clients and what are the kinds of things that they're working through? Um, I'm thinking a little bit too of um, this reminds me a little bit too of Janice Webb's work on emotional neglect. Not that there's an emotional neglect in divorces, I'm not saying, but, but, but this idea like there's something that really impacted me, but maybe again, what we were talking about earlier, it's not supposed to be that big of a thing. And lots mm. of people have gone through this and you know, what, what, why would I even bring that up as, as, as a, an issue that's troubling me, what, whatever the, the scenario is. What, what do you see with some of adults? Um, you know, I see, you know, a little bit, I guess I conceptualize it as like really two forks in the road, right? I think, you know, and again, maybe it depends on developmentally where these folks are when the divorce takes place. But I, I think I've really conceptualized it and observed that you know, this really either has an impact on, you know, their view of self and their view of like their role in the world and, um, you know, the role that they play, um, you know, just in general, but also in relationships and um, how, you know, divorce in in some respects can impact uh, an individual's ability to just love themselves and accept themselves, right? And um, um, I think, you know, some of us, 
engage in kind of repetitious behavior, you know, just out of habit and, and, you know, how much of that really is a little bit of a self-sabotage, right? When things are going well in life and I'm, you know, maybe unconsciously going to find a way to, to have them not go well. And again, you know, that may have been started with the parents' divorce, right? All of a sudden, you know, we were on this road that was like super stable and, and great. And then all of a sudden mom and dad came to me and said, no, we're getting divorced. And, you know, life, as you know, it has completely changed, right? So that, yeah. that pattern could have yes. developed with divorce, right? And, yes. and again, it's just this, you know, I, you know, I think like Freudian, right? Repetition, compulsion, right? Like when we're kind of repeating the same thing, just because we, we don't know any different, right? And we don't necessarily know that that either number one, that pattern pattern is happening. And number two, how to get out of that pattern, right? Like how to do something different. So, you know, part of my work with people on that fork of the road is like just identifying what that pattern is, how it's played out. And, you know, what would you do different, right? What, what would you want to see be the different outcome? Um, and having them kind of consciously step out of that pattern and, and make different choices. Um, and then I think, again, the, maybe the more common avenue is, you know, this has an impact on our ability to form relationships in life, right? Whether yes. that be friendships or, or romantic relationships, you know, the other fork is the, my parents' divorce has really affected and had an impact on my ability to be in relationships with other people, right? And again, I think that view of self always has something to do with it, but it, but it's more a view of others, right? Are people going to be there for me when, um, you know, I need them to be And you know, if you think of a child's conceptualization of divorce, um, you know, people who love me leave, right? And so if I'm operating on that belief, you know, I'm only going to let people get so close, right? I'm only going to let relationships get so far before I'm the one that's kind of, you know, hitting the road. Or again, I'm sabotaging in a way where I'm confirming, you know, what I believe to be true, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm taking a, a perfectly okay, healthy relationship and, and turning it into something where, you know, I, I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'm afraid of getting too close. I'm afraid of divorcing myself, right? Um, and then again, sometimes an avoidance of relationships altogether from an attachment perspective, right? I'm just not going to let people get too close or, you know, some divorce survivors even saying like, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids, right? Like right. not even, not even, you know, wanting to take that risk because again, parents' divorce was so disruptive and harmful that, you know, they just don't want to have to go through that again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, just thinking about, um, you know, we'll be saying the internal working model, it's not that it can't change, it's resistant to change. And so even if it was a different model first, what, you know, as you said earlier, something like this can come in and kind of disrupt that internal working model in terms of the view of the world, in terms of safety and people being safe and available and what you can expect in relationships and all of that sort of thing. I wonder if we might, um, as we are beginning to wind down here, um, I know that you have written some about secure attachment uh, being a, a resiliency factor here. Well, we know it's a resiliency factor in general, but as it specifically relates to divorce, I was thinking about it earlier when we were talking about, you know, with being without maybe the one parent who's trying to deal with another parent being inconsistently available for visits or whatever, that this idea of a secure relationship with one parent and, and what a difference that can make. What are some of your thoughts about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, definitely one secure, <clears throat> one secure relationship is better than no secure relationships, right? When we think about resilience and, um, you know, even in, um, you know, our studies of like intact families, right? Intact non-divorcing families that, you know, what an attachment to a secure attachment to one parent is yes. somewhat protective against the, the impact of conflict, um, yes. you know, interparental conflict, right? So yes, knowing that at least one parent is going to be there and consistently available. Um, and again, you know, I, I just think logistically, you know, some parents have jobs where they travel a lot, right? Or they're gone for, per you know, significant periods of time, just a matter of what they do for a living, right? And how yes. even something like that can impact. Or military. We haven't even gotten right. into this, but I know you have military yes. experience. Military. Right. That that might be another podcast for us. <laughs> it might be. Yes. I think we could spend a whole hour on that, that topic, but yeah, definitely. I mean, again, logistically, nothing's going to be perfect for any family, regardless of the circumstance. But I think kids at the very least need to know mom, dad, whoever it is, are going to be there when I need them, right? When I fall down and, and scratch my knee and I need a Band-Aid to, you know, um, you know, bigger things as they get older. Yes, yes. So, you know, before we end today, I really want to give you some time to share um, some of the great resources you've written and created and some of the other work that you're doing clinically and where people can find you and access these and um, really would like if you could share that with listeners. Sure. Yeah, um, I think um, my, my first publication is Crash Course for Divorce. And I really wrote that as kind of a it's a little bit of autobiographical, you know, autobiographical information, but I also kind of got testimonials from people in my life that had gone through the divorce process. So, um, you know, people that experienced divorce as kids, people that experienced divorce as an adult, um, because I really, yeah, I think one, on the one hand, I wanted to kind of normalize um, some people's experience going through this process, but I didn't, I also wanted them to feel like they had something to go to to kind of hear how others have navigated this process, you know, what, you know, reflecting back what they would do different, um, but also incorporate, you know, some just developmental information for parents, right? If your kid's this age, developmentally, this is what they're striving for. And so this is kind of how we can navigate, you know, not only the divorce process, but, you know, protect them developmentally from, from the, the tasks that they're trying to achieve at, at a specific age. So it's kind of like, you know, again, a, a guide for navigating a process that I don't necessarily know that people are given guides or roadmaps. You know, I think, you know, there, there's the legal team, right? There's, you know, therapists involved sometimes, um, and they're all very separate, right? There's, right. they're all very, you know, separate, non-integrated parts. And, um, you know, again, I just really wanted to provide people, you know, my experience as a divorce survivor, but also others, you know, just to share, mm -hmm. like, look, this isn't an easy process. There's no right or wrong rules, but, you know, this is what we've learned from, from surviving and getting through the process. And, you know, here's maybe some things that you can take into account as you go through it. Um, right. And that's available on Amazon. It's a very inexpensive book, I think like $8 or something like that. Um, and then that kind of inspired me, you know, my work with teens clinically, um, you know, just being a, a teen and family therapist in my clinical practice um, and really having this repetitive conversation with parents about technology. Um, you know, I think within the last, you know, decade or so, technology yes. has really started to have an impact. And, you know, how podcast, raise... podcast number three. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we exactly. can do because I know you've yes. written a lot about that. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Yes. And again, you know, providing developmental information, but look, you know, I mean, you're, you're still the parent here, right? And you're the one that's likely paying the cell phone bill and, you know, buying the computer. And so, you know, you get to still be a parent when, yes. you know, this, your child still has like this, this other friend, right? Or this other, um, you know, device in their life, right? And I, I don't, again, I don't know that a lot of people have talked about, you know, this intersection between technology and teens. And, and we do know from a mental health and research perspective that technology does have negative impacts on just too much screen time for really young kids, right? But also mental health impacts for teens, right? That it's connected to cyberbullying and increased rates of suicide, right? I mean, this is a this is a serious issue, right? And somebody needs to be talking about it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, providing parents with some guidance for how to navigate um, this kind of new world. Right, right. Yes, yes. And so they can find your book on Amazon, they can find your website. Now, some of the groups that you do, are those in person or online? Is that something somebody could, you know, reach out to attend themselves or or uh, refer someone to? Or what about that piece? Sure. Yeah. My, my coaching, um, for childhood divorce survivors is, is all virtual. Um, and so, um, and that's available on an individual basis and a, a small group basis. So it's about six individuals in a group. So it's not a humongous, you know, overwhelming amount of people, but just enough to feel supported and validated in that process. And, yeah. um, usually people reach me through my website, you know, change the tide Um, and then I kind of will respond to that and set up a phone interview and just kind of make sure that the program aligns with their goals. Um, you know, just make sure that we're on the same page and that, you know, I'm a good fit for what they're hoping to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for this really helpful interview on this topic. I, I really appreciate your time and the expertise that you've offered related to this. So thanks so much for for being here for our listeners. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 